First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, what a blessing it is to be here this morning. I've never been to a church where we had such an interesting topic to discuss. What an interesting series it is. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you, Pastor, for doing this really practical and important series. Four reasons not to become a Christian. I've never been to a church where they were saying something like that. And particularly, all of them, I'm, I'm delighted to be a part of the one that says Christians are anti-scientific. Well, that guy said he's a doctor and Christians reject everything he said. Well, I'm here to tell you I'm a medical doctor and I am a Christian. I'm an engineer and I'm a Christian. And interestingly, when I took my exams to get my license as a physician, nobody ever asked me one time, do you believe in evolution? In order to give me a license to practice medicine, when I took my exams to get my board certification in aerospace medicine, nobody ever asked me the question, do you believe in evolution? To certify me to practice that board specialty. When I took my license to become a professional engineer, nobody ever asked me, do you believe in evolution to give me my license where I could teach other engineers and I could teach younger doctors? Nobody ever asked me that question. So how can it be so important? I'm also told that if we do not accept evolution, if Christians do not accept evolution, if our nation does not accept evolution, then we'll become a second-rate nation scientifically, and we will lose all kinds of jobs. Which jobs? That's a great question. Next time someone says that, just say, which jobs? Which jobs are going to be lost? Maybe those of evolutionary biologists, but no other jobs would be lost. So how is it that Christians can be anti-scientific? Actually, what's interesting about the series is these are reasons where we really aren't that at all. So let's discuss three questions which may come up if someone came to you and said Christians are anti-scientific as they relate to creation and evolution. The first question would be, how in the world do you interpret Genesis 1 and 2? How do you understand Genesis 1 and 2? The second question might be, what is your take on Darwinian evolution and its compatibility with the Christian faith? And third, which is probably the most important, are you, are you open to nature pointing to the design of living things? That's a great question for engineers. So how in the world do you understand Genesis 1 and 2? Let's take those questions in reverse order. And as you can see up on the screen, this is almost like Sunday school because we have a whiteboard up there. We have an eraser. And I am going to do a whiteboard talk because I have really long arms and I can write on that baby. No, it's, we're going to be able to, oh, look at that. We can see this. We can zoom in and look at our whiteboard up there, and boom, question number three. Right up there, I want to start with question number three. Are you open to nature pointing to design? Because that is the most important one. That is where I'm going to hopefully teach the Christians a new way to look at how organisms adapt. Organisms adapt. So, are you open to the natural world pointing to, to design? I would say, yes, of course I am. And it says, the workmanship 
seen in living things is best explained by intelligent design, as if there was a super intellect engineer who designed these creatures, better yet, who engineered these creatures to do the things that they do. You notice it has that word workmanship in the answer. That's a great word. That is a biblical word. Because the Bible says over eight times that when it comes to creatures, we are the work of the hands of the Lord Jesus. We are the work of his fingers. It says in Romans chapter 1 that invisible things of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. But that Greek word made is used only one other time in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, we are his what? Workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So what the Bible is saying is, when you look at living things, when you look at all of these creatures, you will see signs of workmanship. And I'm going to suggest that you're going to see the exact same signs of workmanship that you would see in a space shuttle or any other thing that NASA is producing. Corresponding elements, which is going to explain how in the world they function. So let's look at some examples of that. Here's a great question when it comes to adaptation. And adaptation is really the name of the game when it comes to creation and evolution. Because if you were as static as a rock and you couldn't change, in fact, some of you almost look as static as a rock out there <laughs> right now, then a theory of evolution could not get going. But because you can change and every other creature can change, we can change in our own lifetime. Someone can imagine that they can really change. So look up there, you see that cave environment and you'll see some fish that have eyes and you'll see some that have no eyes and very little pigmentation. How in the world does a creature go from having eyes to no eyes? Well, the story that you're told in school, which is really an anti-scientific story, is that those eyeless fish developed all kinds of what? Random mutations, accidental changes, unintentional changes in their DNA, and that over long, long periods of time, those with eyes died off, leaving those without eyes to live. What a silly, silly explanation. And yet that dominates every school, every major university in this state of Florida. I'm going to offer you a better explanation, one that is designed that will hopefully open your eyes to what's happening. In fact, as we study how organisms adapt, the latest research out there shows that they adapt through mechanisms that are highly regulated, highly regulated. They do it quite rapidly, not slowly, over a long period of time. Their adaptations are repeatable. Some of them are even reversible in that the responses that they produce to the change in the environment are so targeted and so specific that they are even predictable. Now, when you hear things that are regulated, rapid, repeatable, and predictable, are you thinking random changes or are you thinking something that is engineered and designed? Engineered and designed. Well, let's take on some of these icons of evolution that they would hold up and say that you are scientific. How many of you have seen this one, blind cavefish? What you see up there are three different species of cavefish they start out with the eyes, and they end up with no eyes at the bottom. In fact, there are over 120 different species of fish. 
that lose their eyes when they're going into caves. How in the world does that even happen? Well, I'm not going to have you read all of these scientific papers, but for the engineers in the crowd who like to see a little scientific evidence, that is the paper. It's a 2013 paper which actually studied how these fish go blind. And amazingly, when they find themselves in a cave, they're not detecting light and darkness. They're actually detecting how the water conducts electricity, which is different in cave water than stream water. They detect that. And when mama lays her eggs in that water, those eggs, as they are developing in the tiny little fish, detect that they're in a cave. And as you can see there up on the screen on the right-hand side, they can go from sighted fish to unsighted fish in one generation. That's like a wow moment. Wow. And not only do they lose that, they lose their pigmentation. And the part of their skull, which is being taken up by those big eyes in their skull, that's partially reabsorbed and portions of their brain expand, enabling them to feel better, hear better, taste better, and sense vibrations in the water better. Quite an amazing feat. In how many generations? One generation. Highly regulated, highly rapid, very, very targeted. How many of you have seen these birds? These are called finches. Whose finches? Darwin's finches. And we're told that, you know, they have those big beaks and small beaks, and that when the seeds are really big and hard, that the birds with really small beaks, they can't eat them, and they what? Die. And that over long periods of time, the beaks change. Wrong again. In fact, this was a paper that came out just this year showing that some of these beaks can change actually quite rapidly. These same finches on the Galapagos Islands, you have those that are living out in the forest, just like traditional finches, and some of them have migrated to the city and are living off human waste food. They're called the rural finches and the urban finches. And if you look up there on the screen, you'll see the differences in beak size. And those beaks have changed in size, not over many, many, many generations, but this study showed they changed in two years. Two years. And you'll see the little quote up there. It says, growing evidence suggests that epigenetic mechanisms may lead to these rapid types of changes. Now, what in the world are epigenetic mechanisms? These are changes in creatures which do not change their DNA. There's no mutations. Their DNA is the same. There are markers put on the DNA at the molecular level which change how they're expressed. And as those little birds develop as an embryo in the egg, they develop a smaller beak to match the food that they're eating. Hmm, that's quite interesting too. That's completely different. And I'll, I would almost wager that none of the major universities in this state are teaching those undergraduate students this kind of evidence. Who's anti-scientific now? Hmm. Oh, here's another icon of evolution. How many of you have seen these in your textbook? The peppered moths, where all of the moths were white over in England, and then those dirty British people started burning coal, and they put coal dust all over the place, getting everything black and dirty and all of that. So the white moths stood out like a sore thumb, and they were what? Eaten by the birds. They died, and the black moths lived. Well, how in the world do they change from light to black? Well, here's a paper just published several years ago 
that gave another mechanism for that, not random mutations. There's actually portions of your DNA which can move around on the chromosome, but you didn't know that. Large stretches of DNA can move around, and when it moves, it enables organisms to adapt. Now, that there's a portion of DNA which codes for that black color, and believe it or not, of the black moths, over 95% have a large portion of DNA that, boom, landed right on the portion of DNA which regulates black color, and they turn black. And 0% of the light moths have it. None. Highly regulated, highly rapid, highly repeatable, and very, very targeted. I wonder how many teachers at the universities in this state are teaching that. Who's anti-scientific now? Well, that's quite interesting here. Let's go with a couple other ones. This is probably a foreign scene to most of you down here in Florida. That's called frozen water, ice on a lake on there. And there are people who live in other states which actually long for that winter to come so they can participate in these outdoor activities. When I went to medical school at the University of Minnesota, <laughs> Minnesota, they were inviting me all the time to go ice fishing with me. I never could see the value in doing it, but they loved it. Well, they want to catch one of those big fish that he's holding in his hand. That's called a pike. And the pike is a predatory fish, and it might eat a trout in the lake. It might eat a bass in the lake. Or it might eat one of these carp in the lake. The carp don't care if it's eating bass and a trout. But as soon as that pike eats one of those carp, that's step number one up there in the picture. He eats the carp. He digests the carp. He puts into the water digested carpy vapors into the water. The other carp detect that, and within one day, they start to morph from that form to the bigger form, making them harder for the pike to chase down and eat. They sense it. They change internally within one day. Oh, here's an interesting fish. This is more to your liking. This is down in the Caribbean. These are called reef races, reef races, because they live on reefs. The male is up there, bright and colorful. The female is a yellow fish. There's usually about 10 to 15 females in this little harem that the male takes care of on that, lucky male, on all of there. Now, what happens, though, if a fisherman comes by and fishes out that male fish? Un unhappy harem. Well, one of those females, one of those females can detect that the male is gone, and within one day, her ovaries regress, she grows testes, and she morphs into a male. Wow. Quite amazing. Sensors to detect, targeted response within one day. She does what all females want to do on this planet, <laughs> and that. And that one day, one day, there. Well, here's another fish. This fish lives in Mexico. And some of the streams have been polluted down there with hydrogen sulfide. That's that rotten egg stuff, which is usually toxic to the fish. But these fish are living there because on their gills, it appears, nobody knows for sure, there is a sensor. A sensor for what? Hydrogen sulfide. 
And when it detects that toxin in the water, it doesn't upregulate aging. Look what it says up on the screen. It upregulates over 1,600 genes and their products and downregulates over 1,800. And these are very, very targeted changes, enabling those fish to keep the toxin out, to excrete it faster if it gets in, and in their liver to metabolize it faster so they don't become toxic. Hmm. That's kind of a wow moment. These fish are doing all of these things. Here's an interesting headline. Mouse can warm sons, grandsons of dangers via sperm. This is what some scientists at your universities in Florida might be doing. They take these male mice, they put them on a little metal plate with electrodes on it that can shock their feet painfully, and they expose them to an odor, an odor in this particular case which smells like cherry blossom. They expose them, they shock their feet. Ouch. Expose them, shock them, expose them, shock them, shock, 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 shock. Then they take these male mice and they mate them with naive female mice. Naive females. Those are females which have never smelled cherry blossom odor. They mate. She has pups. These scientists sacrifice the pups immediately upon birth. They stain through their olfactory region looking for olfactory bulbs and the nerves. And this is what it shows. Between those who were exposed, the sons of dads were exposed in the controls. You see the controls on the left? Those little stained bulbs, those are the olfactory bulbs, the stringy things are the nerves. The controls on the left and the sons whose dads were exposed on the right, over a 200% increase in olfactory bulbs and nerves, specific guess for what? Cherry blossom odor. And they've never smelled it in their life. And this is a way that parents can actually pass on these capabilities to their offspring to fit into the environment that they are currently living in. Well, that's quite remarkable. And now remember I said that they're doing it by the exact same mechanisms that our highly educated engineers at NASA are building things. So you see up there on a car, and all of us have used cruise control, how in the world does that cruise control stay on speed? Well, it has sensors, speed sensors which send data to a computer, a logic center, that says, if I am slowing down, then push on the accelerator. If then logic, and there are output mechanisms which enable the car to adapt its speed. These creatures, and all of the examples I just gave you, use sensors, logic mechanisms, and output mechanisms exactly like the best man-made engineered, adaptable systems work. Only creatures do it far, far, far better. Exactly the same way. And in fact, these creatures, just like the space shuttle, are engineered with up-front, up-front capability to solve the problems that they are going to face in their life. You are engineered the exact same way. Every creature is. You have solutions to problems which you have never faced yet. And so do your children. And they're going to use it by the exact same mechanisms that these engineers put together. So what we really see, we really do see workmanship. We see incredible workmanship in creatures using corresponding system elements to the best man-made things. And so if someone were to ask me, am I open to seeing design in nature? The answer would be, yes, I'm open to seeing it. 
In fact, I can come up with a theory which explains how organisms adapt, and a good scientific theory can make predictions, and I'm able to make a couple predictions as a Christian. Number one, that creatures and their ability to self-adjust will be 100% in them, just like engineers build it into a space shuttle. And two, they're going to continue to function. All of their biological functions are going to be explainable by engineering principles. These two predictions I just gave you are completely, totally, 100% contrary to what these students are being taught at all of the major universities in this campus. That's because they are 20 years behind the times in what they're teaching us. And they say that we're anti-scientific. What you just picked up in First Baptist Church Melbourne today is the latest research on how organisms adapt. And it is totally contrary to Darwinian thinking. You just explained that creatures have sensors to detect, they have logic mechanisms, mechanisms and they have output responses which are exactly like the best man-made things. And that, brothers and sisters, is the most current research out there. And that's why we are not anti-scientific. In fact, you now are ahead of the game. And if you're going off to college, you can explain some of these things to your professor who are teaching outmoded thinking. Wow, that was just question number one. Are you open to nat the natural world pointing to design? Well, question number two was actually two questions. What is your take on Darwinian evolution, and is it compatible with Christian faith? Well, we would have an answer for that, and I would say Darwinian evolution is a weak scientific theory. And if you're entering into a discussion with your friends, don't just say Darwinian evolution is crazy. That won't get you anywhere. But you can say it's a weak scientific theory and a poor explanation for the design of living things. And if they ask you, well, how does it fit with your faith, you can basically say the basic premises of evolutionary theory cannot be reconciled to biblical Christian faith. That tells them that you have really thought about it. You've been listening to the pastor series, and you know exactly what you are talking about. Now, why in the world would I say it's a weak scientific theory? Well, this is because if evolution is true, Everything about it that you're going to be taught is an inference, is an inference where they're looking at something in the present and they're extrapolating by massive imagination to things in the past. But if evolution were true, two things have to be true. You have to get life going naturally and you have to be able to change it from one basic kind to another. And the first one is scientists, none of them, have a clue of how life began by natural processes. None. There's not a scientific paper published anywhere on this planet at any university which documents a natural origin of life by observation and testing. Observation and testing. And then second, there's not a scientific paper published anywhere on this planet. And this, you know, this would become this would come as a revelation to many of the professors at these universities that there's not a scientific paper which documents one creature changing to a fundamentally different kind. But to the contrary, all observations for all of human history always have observed parent 
reproducing offspring, which is after their kind. No exceptions. If you're a scientist in the audience here and you have a paper which shows an exception to that fact, I'd like to see it. I'd like to see that paper. That would really be interesting. But if you don't have that paper, then really you're the one who's holding the anti-scientific view because you're holding something which is contrary to all known observations. Second, evolutionists say that life started out as single and over a long period of time it branched out to the diversity of life on earth, all the different kinds. But what we find in the fossil record is at the lowest level of the fossil record, nearly every major body type shows up instantaneously without any evolutionary ancestors. Vertebrates, invertebrates, mollusks, all of those different kinds show up instantaneously, completely the opposite of what evolutionary theory predicts. In addition to that, evolutionary theory says that the reason why creatures have similar features is because they have a common ancestor. But look up there on the screen, you see those sharks and those, those, that dolphin. They have similar features, but they don't share a common ancestor unless you go way, 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 way back. Humans have the same type of eye as a squid. And in fact, that, that bat and that whale, and then the dolphins too, they have the exact same genetics for echolocation. Evolutionary theory doesn't predict any of those things. In fact, we predicted them as creationists before anybody could even sequence DNA. Back in 1963, the leading evolutionist at the time, Ernst Mayer of Harvard University, said, if you're looking for similar information between these creatures, it was what? Quite futile, except in close evolutionary relatives, because over evolutionary time it would have changed and changed and changed and been very, very different. But the founder of the Institute for Creation Research, Dr. Henry Morris, said, no, I predict that you're going to find similar design information for similar features. And in 1975, it was, they made that prediction. In 2005, Sean Carroll wrote a book where he documented that we found similar genetic information for similar features, and he says it was inescapable. Nobody predicted it. Nobody thought it would be there, and it was quite stunning. It was stunning, but he was wrong on nobody predicted it because creationists were predicting it over 20 years in advance. Who's anti-scientific? Oh, here's another one that they were wrong about. If you go to museums, you'll find these two little bones hanging from the, suspended by wires from a, a whale skeleton. And we were told that these are vestigial hip bones, that the land creature which went back into the water, which had a hip, a pelvis attached to their backbone, they didn't need those legs, the legs regressed and you had these vestigial hip bones. And this was really good evidence for evolution. Well, researchers actually studied what those bones were for, and they are bones embedded in the soft tissue which enable these underwater creatures like whales and dolphins to copulate underwater. No small feat to do that. There's no hard surfaces to push against, and they need that bony structure. They serve a very specific purpose. 
Evolutionists were wrong a lot about a lot of things. They were wrong about saying your appendix was a useless organ when it is an important organ in your immune system. They were wrong about saying that you have a tailbone, the bone that you're sitting on here, which is a vestigial remnant from your ape-like ancestor. Yet we know, and everybody has really known, that that bone anchors important muscles in your pelvic floor, and I'm glad you've got it, and you're glad you've got it. They were wrong about little embryos having gill slits at the embryonic stage, which never are gill slits, never function like gill slits, never have gill material in them, but they're little folds in that little baby as it's developing as an embryo, which are eventually gonna develop into their jaw and their thyroid glands and parts of its neck. They were wrong about saying that there was a bunch of junk DNA in your DNA, when researchers have found that the vast majority of it is fully functional and you need it. And they were wrong about humans and chimps being 98% similar to each other, which all of us have heard, when the best studies come out that they're only about 80 to 85% similar. Wrong about all of those kinds of things. Yet they're not changing their teaching. They were wrong about Neanderthals being these primitive, brute, cavemen-like creatures when now we know genetically that humans and Neanderthals, which are the same type, mated with each other and had children and offspring together. Totally wrong about that. I also don't like scientific theories which rely so much on imagination. How many of you have heard of the fossil named Lucy? You all have heard of Lucy. That's, a, that's an artist's rendition on the right-hand side of the screen up there of what they think Lucy looks like but on the left-hand side are the bones, are the bones of Lucy. Do you see between the bones and the artist's rendition a vast amount of imagination to fill it in? Now, real scientists don't fill the blanks with big voids of information, of imagination. Who's anti-scientific when they do that? Well, they say, well, that was in the 1970s. Nobody's doing it today. Wrong. There's another fossil came out in 2015, supposed ape-like ancestor. The artist's rendition is on the left. The bones are on the right. And in 2015, they're still filling huge voids with massive amounts of imagination. I have no idea why this is persuasive to anybody, and I have no idea why it would persuade any Christian to reject our faith because of these kinds of things. So I find it a weak scientific theory because it's been wrong on so many of its predictions and the things that it's teaching. But I don't find it compatible with Christian faith either. In fact, these are two leading evolutionists, Lewis and Mary Leakey, who in 1961 published a book called Adam's Ancestor. And in that book, they set forth the evolutionary theory for the evolution of human beings from an ape-like ancestor. And everything that they taught in 1961 is still being embraced by evolutionists today, either atheistic evolutionists or theistic evolutionists. But they're wrong on so many things when it comes to the biblical account. Completely wrong on those. First of all, the Bible says that Adam and then Eve, who was made from his side, were a direct creation by God. We just sang about that. And there are those verses. And in fact, as you are celebrating, celebrating Advent, you'll see that Luke up there, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, goes all the way back to who? Adam, who says Adam was the son of God. But theistic evolutionists said we descended from an ape-like ancestor. 
The Bible also says that Adam was the first human being, the head of the human race, but evolutionists and theistic evolutionists teach that we descended from a population where the first one is completely indeterminate. So we can't find it reconciled with any biblical accounts. But more important, these biblical passages up here state from Old Testament and New Testament a very important theological fact relating directly to our salvation, which says there was a real man who really sinned and brought real death to who? Everyone. Everyone who was in the loins of Adam, which was all of us. And therefore, this man needed a real Savior. And then there was a second Adam who came, the Lord Jesus Christ, who brought that salvation to every one of us. And so we have an explanation for why there is sin, why there is sickness, why there is death. And that's why the evolutionary worldview, which is a completely death-driven worldview based on survival of the what? Fittest. And it's always survival, and they'll never get away from that, should be completely repugnant to us as Christians. We should reject the thinking of Steve Jobs when he gave his commencement address at Stanford University and when he was dying of pancreatic cancer, where he said, death is very likely the single best invention of life it's life's change agent. And that is what your children are being taught at these schools, that the, all of creatures, including humans, can never advance from an evolutionary perspective unless there is a huge amount and a vast amount of death to precede it, where all of the unfit die and are wiped out. And any of us who want to embrace that death-driven view would find a hard time simultaneously holding the Christian worldview, which says this, death was a curse. Death is not natural. Death is a curse, and death is an enemy, and the Lord Jesus Christ came to conquer death. Conquer death. And that's why I find it incompatible with Christian faith. I also find it incompatible because we just sang about the glories of the Lord and that this creation reveals his glory and that the design reveals his glory. But evolutionists say, when I look at something designed, I have to declare that it's only an illusion of design, only looks like it was designed, but really wasn't. What do you, all of the things I told you earlier are evidences of design, but look up there on the screen. Do you see something that looks like gears on the screen? That's because they are gears. Those are, that's a microscopic photograph of the hind legs of that tiny little insect up there called a plant hopper. And it hops from plants to plants. And it's an incredible hopper because it can launch itself from zero to 700 Gs. When it jumps and its legs snap in one 30 millionth of a second. Wow. And how in the world does it keep the legs going at the same time? Because in the back, they're connected by a set of gears. Gears. And those gears are in the hind legs of that plant hopper. Now, when I see that, I see design. I see incredible engineering. I don't see something that looks like it was designed, but really wasn't. Now tell me, who's being anti-scientific 
when someone sees that and they say, well, it only looks like it was designed, but really isn't. That's the anti-scientific explanation for all of those things. Whoa. Question number three, which was really question number one. Now we're ready to explain how in the world do we understand and interpret Genesis 1 and 2? Well, I would say this. Genesis 1 and 2 are historical narratives, not poetry, not stories, historical narratives of how God created. And how do I interpret them? I interpret them the way I interpret anything else in life. I give words their normal meaning in their normal context. And that's exactly what I was taught as a student at Moody Bible Institute. Historical narrative, words are given their normal meaning in their normal context. I'm a medical doctor. I rely on the fact that people take what I say and interpret it normally. For instance, if you came to my clinic, you would walk away possibly with a prescription for some medication because nobody likes to go to the doctor and pay a $40 fee and I'm just tell you, well, you're gonna get better in a few days. Everybody likes to walk out with something and here's a medication called a Tenolol. If you got highly evolved peepers, you can see it. It says, I want you to take a Tenolol, that's a high blood pressure medication, 150 milligrams by mouth daily. Is that plain? That's pretty plain. What would, what would you do if you took your script to the pharmacist and they said, well, what does Dr. Galuza mean by mouth? Mouth of a river, mouth of a cave, you know, what, is, what does he mean by mouth? You know, because it can mean a lot of things. And so he changes your script to just the general meaning, a natural opening. So now your script says, take 150 milligrams by a natural opening daily. Hmm. That's incredible on that. But no, in the context, mouth means what? Mouth. That's called a kind of a, a literal interpretation, and you're glad that we interpret things literally. Well, when I was in the Navy as an engineer, we had a contract to rehab some barracks. And part of the rehab contract said that the contractor will go in and apply two coats of paint to the walls. Well, this contractor went in he applied one coat of paint to all of the barracks and he left. And the government came out and said, well, the contract says two coats of paint. And the contractor sent us a letter that says, what the contract means is one coat thick enough to equal two coats of paint. <laughs> and this went to court. Who do you think won? The government or that contractor? You think the government got cheated out of all their money and that contractor went away winning again? No. The, the judge sided with the government. And he said this in his ruling. In contract law, words must be construed to their normal meaning in the context of the specification. Otherwise, the intentions of either party becomes what? Unknowable. May I suggest to you that that's how we should approach our Bible? That's how we should approach our Bible? Otherwise, the intentions of the writer becomes what? Unknowable. If you can make words mean anything you want them to mean, and there are some good scientific reasons why we should look at 
Genesis 1 and 2 as historical narrative. Scholars can look at the vocabulary of Hebrew poetry and Hebrew allegories, and they can look at the vocabulary of real historical narratives in the Bible, and Genesis 1 and 2, when you compare the vocabulary, plots right out there with historical narratives. Historical narratives. And in fact, this is really important because this was a major part of the Protestant Reformation. And you see some of the great heroes of the faith, Wycliffe, Tyndale, Luther, Calvin, up there. Now, why was this so important to them? Because the dominant teaching of the church at that time was that the Bible was somewhat mystical, hard to understand, and you average person in the pew could not read it and understand it for yourself. But you need to have a holy man like me. And I would come up and I would what? Tell you what it said. Tell you what it said. Well, the reformers said, hogwash. <laughs> the Bible is clear. God can say what he means, and he means what he says. And anybody can read it and understand it for themselves. That's what Tyndale and Wycliffe were all about, is that you can understand it, and you don't have to have a holy man tell you what it says. Was there any biblical justification for that? Plenty. You see those verses up there in Deuteronomy. Moses said... You don't have to have someone come across the ocean and tell you what the Bible means because it's clear its words are in your very heart and in your mouth. And all of those verses up there from John are saying, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will lead you into what? All truth. And then you see that Acts passage up there? That's an interesting one. That's talking about the Bereans who said, Paul said were more noble than the Thessalonians because when Paul came and preached to them, they searched their Bible to see what, what Paul was saying was true. They weren't relying on an expert to tell them what the Bible says. They were using the Bible to see if what the expert said was true. This is why this was a major, a major Reformation issue where the reformers said, you, you do not need to have a holy man tell you what the Bible says. Oh, there's a lot of people who gave their life, gave their life for that important point. And we're facing a similar challenge today, not necessarily with holy men, particularly not in our Protestant churches, but there are a lot of Protestant churches which say this, you can't understand the Bible scientifically until a science guy comes and tells you what Genesis 1 and 2 means. And you know what the interesting about that is the science guys are all atheists. They're all atheists. Now, why would a pastor put his flock in a position, praise God, you don't have a pastor who does that, who says, you can't understand it until, until Stephen Hawking tells you what it means. You don't need a holy man, and you don't need a science guy. And you can take your Bible to any place on this planet with a good translation to these Alka Indians, and you can give them their Bible, even if they've never heard of Stephen Hawking, and they can understand Genesis 1 and 2 for themselves, for themselves. This is why this is really, really important. And you know what else that's important? It's important for church growth and stability. 
This is a study that came out in 2017 by researchers at Indiana University and Harvard, not believers. And they did a study of church attendance over about 15 years, and they looked at churches who believed that the Bible was inspired but not literal, meaning you can't give the words their normal meaning. And those churches that looked at it as both inspired and literal, that's probably this church, and those churches that didn't believe it was anything but a book of fables. And over that same period of time, the churches that believed it was inspired and literal, their attendance stayed steady. But the churches who said, you can make the words mean anything, they are hemorrhaging church membership right and left. And as you can see from the graph, they're going over to people who think that they don't believe in anything. So we are not anti-scientific. We are not anti-gospel. In fact, what you're teaching in the church is essentially and exactly what we need to do as Christians. And finally, the main reason why I believe that we should give words their normal meaning is that the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul did the same thing. The Lord Jesus, quoting from Genesis 1 and 2, when asked, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, said, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and from female, Genesis 1. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall hold tight to his wife, Genesis 2, and the two shall be one flesh. And then the Apostle Paul, believing in a real, literal Adam, said this, for, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. You know what that means? There's only two groups of people on this planet today. Not rich, not poor, not pretty, not ugly. Nothing by any of these races. There's only two groups of people. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. You're either in Adam and lost or you are in Christ and you are saved. And that's what we have in the world today. And that's what the Bible teaches. And that's why I believe that Genesis 1 and 2 are historical narrative. So we've just covered three really important questions as they relate to the topic, are Christians anti-scientific? Let me recount them for you again. Number three, are you open to the natural world? Number two, what is your take on Darwinian evolution and Christian faith? Number one, how do you interpret and understand Genesis 1 and 2? Number one, how do you interpret and understand Genesis 1 and 2? Sorry, this was a, a recount in Florida, so I thought I'd better count, <laughs> count one of them twice there on that. But uh, anyhow, I'm not from Florida, so it gave, gave me a chance to get a little poke in but on that. These are really, really important. What's the probability that you're going to remember everything that I said? Zero. Zero. Out on our table, we have a free magazine, Acts and Facts, in its 40th year publication. This magazine changed my life. I was a student at Moody Bible Institute fully believing in evolutionary theory. You're going to find that hard to believe fully believing in it, fully convinced of it. And I picked this magazine up off the rack at Moody Bible Institute 
and I read it. This was in 1979, and it changed my life, and that is the reason why I'm here teaching this today. It is free. It will keep you up to speed on current events. It's good for you. It's good for your children and your grandchildren. Please sign up for this, and we will mail it to you free because we want you to have it. Our donors pay for it, and it's an important ministry and a resource. We have some other books out there that will help you. We have a series on Made in His Image, which will hopefully lead you to worship this great creator that you have today. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Pastor, for having such a spot-on, relevant, up-to-date series of messages for the saints today. This is exactly what they need, exactly what pastors do in feeding and defending the flock. Thank you very much. Let's pray. Mm. Mm. Oh, precious Lord Jesus, Father in heaven, we praise you, praise you and thank you for your good grace. Thank you for opening our mind to this truth. Please help us to be lovers of those who are without, gentle and kind with them, but help, them, help us to share the reasons for the hope that is within us. Thank you for this church. Equip it, empower it, open doors of opportunity for all the saints this week to talk to their friends. We love you, Lord, and we honor you as our great creator and savior. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that in your precious name. Amen, amen.